listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Josh. How are you, Bob? I'm doing okay. How are you? Excellent. Very well. Good. Uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You are Josh Landis a uh, professor at the University of Oklahoma. In fact, you occupy the Sandra Mackey chair there, I guess. And you're director of the Center for Middle East Studies there. And is that right? Yes. And and you're director of something else, aren't you? Yes, the Farzani Family uh, Center for Iran Studies and Persian Gulfans, yes. Okay, good. Well, congratulations on all that. Uh, And... You uh, are still publishing at Syria Comment. You've you've long had a blog. Yes, not as active as it used to be. During the opening years of the Syrian Civil War, I was writing every day on that, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. much less so. I'm a fellow at the um, Quincy Institute, and I write for them occasionally. For responsible statecraft? Um, Yes, indeed. So, uh, listen, it seems to me that uh, the Middle East has been pretty fluid lately, even by its own standards. Um, Seems like there are a lot of developments. uh, Some of them worrisome, not all of them getting a lot of attention in mainstream media. And I wanted to talk to you about them and get you to help us uh, see some of the interconnections among them. And maybe by the end of the conversation, uh, get your sense for how... uh, ominous they do or don't seem to you. Um, and these things are going on in various countries. I would say that Israel has been getting the most attention, uh, and, and we'll come to that. Uh, but there are things kind of going on all over. Let me just um, read something from a relatively obscure media outlet uh, that showed up yesterday. Today is uh, August 8th. Uh, It says more than 3,000 American sailors and Marines arrived in the Middle East on Monday, the U.S. Navy announced, as Washington beefs up its presence in the region amid rising tension with Iran. The deployment comes days after the Associated Press reported that Washington was considering putting armed personnel on commercial ships traveling through the Strait of Hormuz, an unprecedented action aimed at stopping Iran from seizing and harassing civilian vessels. So... That's interesting. I mean, I guess one question is, uh, how long has Iran been seizing and harassing civilian vessels and and why? Well, this really goes to two major issues. One is great power rivalry in the Persian Gulf. And and that's China's arrival as a major power in the Persian Gulf. Mm -hmm. And the United States is jumping in on the side of Saudi Arabia and the UAE against Iran in in a way to say, we're here, we're still, you know, riding shotgun for you and we're still defending you, providing security because both the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been turning towards China for many of their defensive needs. And they've been doing it in a high profile way, in part to thumb their noses at the United States, but in part it's, it's to get the United States to bargain with the United States to say, you know, you you have to really uh, defend us against Iran. So this gesture on the part of the United States 
to defend uh, ships going through the Persian Gulf mm -hmm. is a reassurance, a message of reassurance to the Gulf states saying, you stick with us, we can defend you. Secondly, um, the Biden administration, as you know, has not rejoined the Iran nuclear deal. And in, in fact, it's continued to really maximize sanctions. And it's taken, uh, it's stopped a bunch of Iranian tankers. There's a one Iranian tanker that's now uh, anchored off of Galveston, Texas, off of Texas, that the United States captured. And it's trying to sell the oil on board, saying that it's being illegally exported because we have sanctions on Iran. And no, oddly enough, no, Texan-based private company will take the oil, even for free, to resell it because they're they're frightened that Iran mm -hmm. will take their ships. So Iran, this is this is a tit-for-tat war. And in a sense, what Iran is saying is if you won't let us export our oil, we're going to stop other Gulf countries, mm -hmm. such as Kuwait, the UAE, and so forth, from exporting their oil. And we can muck up the we can hurt you if you're hurting us. And that's okay. what's going on. This is a tit for tat war that's been going on for a long time, unfortunately. Okay, let's uh, drill down on that a little before we get back to the super uh, power competition and the kind of reemergence of, of a Cold War dynamic in the Middle East. Um, so, you know, there was this Iran nuclear deal that was done during the Obama administration that Biden seemed to be happy with. Uh, Trump uh, abandoned it. Uh, got out of the deal and uh, and reimposed not only, I, I guess, the sanctions that had been in place prior to the deal, but I think some additional ones. He called them extreme something or other. He had, he had a term for it. Um, right. Now, once Biden was president, I might have naively expected that it wouldn't be that hard to get back into a deal, that, that he would just say, well, let's return to the status quo ante. I was happy with the deal. We'll remove all the sanctions uh, that were imposed during the Trump administration, and Iran will go back to strict compliance with a deal. Now, that's not what happened. Was that even conceivable? Was that possible? And if it was, why, why didn't it happen? Well, I think it didn't happen for a number of reasons. One is that Biden traditionally has been very close to Israel and has kept Israel uh, close to him for political reasons for, for, and maybe you know for, for personal reasons as well. It's, un, it's unclear. Secondly, um, you know, I think Blinken, our Secretary of State, has uh, it, it doesn't like Iran that much. Um, Many people don't in America, yeah. apparently. No. Uh, but and thirdly, um, Democrats in Congress showed uh, many of them did not want to get back on board. You know, Trump. Trump was not just going off half cocked when he went against the Iran deal. Mm -hmm. it, it was very unpopular with Democrats and Republicans in Congress. And, you know, so all of them, uh, the congressional members are looking over their shoulders every two years. They have to get reelected. Iran's not popular. Israel is popular. And so all of those things, I think, really made it hard for Biden to concentrate on patching this up. Obama made it really central, and he believed that a, a lot of our foreign policy has gotten um, really off kilter and needed to be revised since the Cold War. Um, I don't think 
you know, President Biden sort of has a nostalgia for the Cold War. And we've seen that in the Ukraine thing and this whole democracy versus autocracies. He 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 um is much more willing to to look at the world in that that us against them way that Obama tried to get away from. Yeah. Yeah, well, the Iran deal had been a tough sell to begin with. As you say, it faced some opposition in the in the Democratic Party, uh, notably from Senator Menendez, who has a lot of influence by virtue of chairing, what, what does he chair, the uh, Foreign Relations Committee or something? Foreign Relations um, So uh, anyway, we just didn't, did it seem to you like in principle, you could have just restored the deal if you wanted to? Like Iran would have gone have. along with that? You know, you could have the trouble was when it, the the deal was originally placed in 2015, 16 negotiated. It had a 15 year time horizon, right. and for you know, Iran would not would not um, continue to to um, purify uranium. We had already used up another seven of those years, so. The horizon was getting shorter and shorter all the time, and the deal looked less interesting to Americans because it was only going to mm -hmm. delay Iran for so much time. The trouble is Iran has gotten more powerful. It has begun to um, really slip out of some of these sanctions. And because of the Ukraine war, Russia needed Iran. China's become, you know, America's become much more hostile with China and China hostile towards America. So China mm -hmm. is more willing to break sanctions than it used to be. So Iran began to see other alternatives for itself, that it didn't have to make the deep compromises with the United States, that it could go east and, um, and just ride this out. Mm -hmm. And, and 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 hope to break sanctions on its own as America gets weaker. And that's been Iran's constant, you know, I think the mullahs have been saying to themselves, America's going down. And uh, in, in, well, influence, down. In, in, influence, down in terms of influence in the Middle East, you mean? Yeah, and as a major power. That's not mm. the sole major pow power anymore. That China is coming up. We can look east. The rest of the world, not only China, but there are many other powers that are becoming stronger. They don't like the United States hegemony. They're trying to look for alternatives to the dollar. We can ride this out. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have to. We don't have to cavil to. You know, we don't have to get on our knees in front of America. And so that's, you know, I think that's a growing sense amongst many powers in the world, and it, it's it's also growing with the UAE and Saudi Arabia as they begin to look to China as an alternative and to play America against China in order to get more benefits for themselves. And Turkey is doing it, Brazil is doing it. So this isn't just a uh, an Iran thing, but Iran is looking very much in that direction. And America is, you know, America is is worried, uh, I think in its own right. And so it's it's doing more to try to please the Gulf states. And part of that comes back to this, why are we at least floating the idea of mm -hmm. sending, putting soldiers aboard all these ships in the Persian Gulf? Okay, and final question on the on the Iran deal itself. So that was, um, it was in 2014 that Obama did the deal, right? The, the, the um, it was two yeah, years before the end. I think 15, when it, when it was okay. ratified. Okay, yeah. and, then, and then is is what Biden did say, Look, we have some additional things that we want Iran to do aside from its obligations under the nuclear deal that aren't even in the nuclear arena per se. Was that was, yes. we want we yeah. want more concessions now? 
there there was a question about more concessions yeah, you know okay. in terms of horizon timelines as as well as missile technology and right. so forth even it, conventional missiles and this got us sidetracked and everybody began to you know it was a very difficult deal to to to, to negotiate in the first place but it became more and more difficult right. and um and i think you know biden just wasn't that interested in it it, it was going to cost him a lot politically so um okay so back to this cold war thing now, in Cold War One, uh, the Middle East was very much thought of as an arena of superpower competition, but the superpower was the Soviet Union, which was the more powerful of the two great uh, communist menaces, as they were seen at the time. Right. And uh, I guess it's still the case that Russia has the most uh, conspicuous associations, you might say, like their connection to Syria is well known. They have a naval base there. Uh, by virtue of that, almost, if for no other reason, they have a kind of connection to Iran. Uh, Iran and Russia were the two big supporters of the Syrian regime um, during the, you know, kind of uh, civil war that was, uh, to some extent, a proxy war between the U.S. and, and regional allies on the one hand and, and Syria and Iran on, on the other, in a certain sense. Um, but... Uh, but now you're saying, it, would you say that China is becoming more important than Russia in the Middle East? I mean, and is it is it kind of not yet clear? Is, is the situation still settling? It sounds like it is in a way in terms of who is going to be whose proxies in this thing, right? Like we're worried, it sounds like, that Saudi Arabia will become, in effect, if not quite a Chinese uh, proxy, you know, uh, a country closer to them than we would like. I mean, th there's, there's still flux in terms of the kind of Cold War II alignment, assuming that's what eventually it becomes. Yeah, let me, you know, let me just throw out a, a few statistics for you to give you a sense. You know, in 1975, height of the Cold War, mm -hmm. the U.S. economy was over three times um, bigger then the next biggest economy, which was the Japanese economy at the time. You know, things have changed so dramatically in such a small period of time. China today, in, in manufacturing output, China is $2 trillion or 20% of world industrial output. The US comes in number two at 1.8 trillion. Japan is way behind at 1 trillion, 10%. Of world output and Germany is 700 billion. South Korea, the next contender, is is half as much as Germany. So China has just screamed up in those years. And it it if you if you look at Chinese GDP based on purchasing power parity, in other words, a bunch of goods that it, you can buy in both um, that Chinese and Americans can buy. China is now the biggest economy. GDP in PP, you know, with with its purchasing, mm -hmm. purchasing power parity. And then, you know, to take it one step further, if you look at Saudi Arabia or the UAE, let's look at UAE, UAE for example. Um, the UAE bilateral trade between the US and the UAE, United Arab Emirates, in 2021 was $23 billion. The bilateral trade between China and the UAE was $75 billion. Mm -hmm. So it, it's almost three times as much. 
And that trade is projected to hit $200 billion by 2030. There are 6,000 Chinese businesses that have their Middle East headquarters in the UAE or, or, or you know, operate in the UAE or have their headquarters in the UAE. Mm -hmm. It's a tremendous amount. And, and it, the same thing is true with Saudi Arabia. You know, only 10 years ago, the US was by far Saudi Arabia's biggest trading partner. That's no longer true. Um, mm -hmm. China's trade with Saudi Arabia is, is about twice as much as US trade today. So, you know, in, in terms of China's weight in the Middle East, it's very big. And what are we, so it sounds like we are trying to compensate for that by saying, well, we'll give you military support. But what are we afraid w would happen if we didn't sell them on that idea? I mean, are we afraid that Saudi Arabia and UAE would exclude us from certain uh, markets or something? I mean, what what is the concern? Well, take, let's look at the very narrowest concern. I mean, well, we should start with a big concern. The big concern is that since World War II, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have been client states of the United States. And we traded a very simple trade, which is we offered them security, we protect them, as we did in, you know, 1990 in the Gulf, you know, second Gulf War, where we sent over 400,000 troops and defended them against possible Iraqi invasion after Iraq took Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And that was extremely successful. We protected Saudi Arabia, we returned sovereignty to Kuwait in exchange for oil. And it's not that they're giving us oil, it's that they are coordinating that OPEC and Saudi Arabia as the largest exporter of oil which dominates OPEC strategy, was coordinating with Washington very closely on production, you know, pricing, all these things. It gave America really a, a tremendous advantage uh, and power in world energy markets. And that also allowed, um, you know, in many ways, we, we won World War II because we stopped Hitler from getting oil. You know, mm -hmm. Hitler in 1941, the hinge of fate, as Churchill called it, was trying to get oil. Both Stalingrad was a way to get to the Caspian Sea and get Russian oil. And El Alamein, the other major battle taking place in Egypt, was to shut off the Suez Canal and shut off British oil and European oil from Iran. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and Germany failed in both those battles. And it's, it was starved of oil. Its panzer units and so forth just couldn't run. And, and that helped the West win. It helped the United States and Britain win in the war. And we've always thought of energy as a key strategy and a, a, a key commodity in World War III. And if we think of Taiwan and possible China conflagration in the future, you can be sure that people in Washington are thinking, Who's going to have control of the Persian Gulf, oil exports, and so forth? That's why the notion that Saudi Arabia and the UAE could slip out of our sphere of influence towards China is a scary thought, I think, for people in Washington who still see the U.S. as being the sole major superpower, the hegemon in this region. 
And, and that I think that dominates thinking. Uh, it dominates thinking for America. Americans, you know, every four years, Americans are told by their presidential candidates that we're an indispensable nation, that the world order is going to go to hell if America's not the superpower, that we've got to cling to all this power. We cannot let down our guard. And Americans like that. They like being number one. It's very difficult to think of a multipolar world. Um, I want to, I have one more question about oil, something I've never really understood. So, so, I, so, so you've got this scenario where there's true world war. And I guess in that case, I can imagine access to Persian Gulf oil mattering. But I've usually actually heard the, the, the argument uh, put in a contemporary context. In other words, people saying, look, if tomorrow Saudi Arabia got mad at us, uh, you know, and, and, and quit selling us oil or something, you know, there would be trouble. And I've always thought, well, wait a second. I mean, it would be one thing if Saudi Arabia and the other OPEC states decided to keep oil off the market entirely, then the whole world would indeed uh, face an oil shortage uh, and prices would go up. But assuming that, since that would be bad for them, they would sell their oil somewhere to someone, even if not to the U.S., wouldn't the, the, the world oil price wind up remaining more or less the same? Okay, so we don't buy from them per se, but if we've got a few oil-producing nations we're on good terms with, we'll pay roughly the same price we would have paid to them. So I've always thought this concern was overstated. Of course, we do have a way of antagonizing oil-producing nations when you think about it. I mean, Venezuela and so on. But but uh, does that seem like a, a crazy question? Of course, there's also the no, fact it's that— No, it's not crazy at all. You know, yeah. it's not crazy at all because oil oil countries have to sell their oil. Right. And now, um, clearly, China is by far the biggest consumer of Middle Eastern oil. And it's the biggest single client of Saudi Arabia. It, 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 Saudi Arabia provides China with more oil. Just recently, Russia has overtaken it because it's been discounting its oil in order to get it, you know, avoid sanctions. But but um, that oil is going to be sold. You know, I think that Washington does have a very simplistic view, which is we want to be able to stop the flow of oil to China if there's going to be a Taiwan conflagration. And we want to be able to have our hand on a spigot and threaten the rest of the world in the way that we can threaten Iran and say, we can turn off your oil or Venezuela. We can turn off your oil and not let you export Mm -hmm. any oil. And we, we'll, we'll bring you to your knees overnight. We, we've been used to being able to do that. We were able to put an embargo on Iranian oil in 1953 and two with, with Britain and bring Iran to its knees. We overthrew its government for $3 million. Now, we've been trying to do something similar in the last decade and have failed. But, uh, you know, it shows the, the, the change in balance of power. But America has gotten used to that kind of control and relinquishing it, it requires a different vision of the world in which America is no longer has its hand on all of these products and can't, you know, can't um, twist people's arms as easily. And then that requires much more negotiation. But, you know, the United States has added four million, more than four million barrels of oil a day in production because of. Fracking. Domestic, d domestic production. 
domestic production. We are now self-sufficient largely in mm. energy. Uh, we consume about 20 million barrels of oil a day, which is out of 100 million barrels are being consumed by the entire world. Mm -hmm. America consumes 20 of those, um, you know, roughly. So we're a giant consumer, but we're producing at an, an incredible rate. So we don't need the rest of the world for, for our oil. It's, it's true. It's really about oil as an com international commodity and about power. And that's where it requires that we and China uh, and the rest of the world come to some agreement about, you know, about sharing power. And we're going to have to because we can't control it. So that 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 would be nice. So um, so just to review, like how we got to this particular possible confrontation with our soldiers possibly boarding uh, commercial vessels that Iran has been stopping. We didn't want to just restore the Iran deal the simple way. So we uh, persisted in the sanctions, including ones that Trump had added on. And that's our excuse for seizing Iranian ships in the vicinity of America. We say, well, there's these American sanctions. It's not like, they're, 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 I mean, I don't know if these particular sanctions, there were sanctions that were, that were uh, supported by the UN Security Council before the Iran deal, but, and I don't know which ones these are, but the ones Trump added on were not. So there, there's a combination of like unilateral sanctions. So in any event, we're saying, well, because of these sanctions, we can seize your ship. And Iran right. says, we can play this game too. We're going to seize some ships until you quit seizing our ships. Right. And now we're closer to an actual confrontation. Are you concerned about, uh, about the coming weeks and months? I mean, do, do you think we are going to board these ships? And I mean, Iran, it seems to me is often- I think we're going to avoid it. I think we're going to avoid it because frankly, everybody has talked, all of our presidents have talked <laughs> about reducing the amount of, of military assets that we pour into the Middle East. We want to, you know, transition to the to China and the East and, and and reduce our commitments to the Middle East. This is just going to make them go through the roof. If anything goes wrong, Iran will be able to, you know, to twist our tail more easily. Um, I, I don't see this. I, I think it's this is a way of trying to reassure both the UAE and Saudi Arabia that we're not asleep at the wheel. Because if you remember, um, in 2019, Iran, in a similar situation, Iran attacked Upcake refinery in Saudi Arabia, a refinery that produces almost 50% of refined oil mm -hmm. products in Saudi Arabia. And, and President Trump decided he was not going to go defend Saudi Arabia and hit Iran back. Saudi Arabia was shocked and was very upset and said, look, you're, you are not upholding your end of the bargain, which is to mm -hmm. defend us. The same thing has happened to the UAE when Yemenis sent drones and some missiles towards the UAE and Saudi Arabia and hit mm -hmm. them. Biden and Trump both have not responded militarily to Iran. And this has led both countries to begin to say, you know, America's not gonna defend us. We have mm -hmm. to make peace with Iran, which has been a good thing uh, because Saudi Arabia and, his, and China brokered this peace agreement between right. Iran, exchange ambassadors, they're having meetings back and forth. So that's been very good. Um, but also it's meant that the UAE and Saudi Arabia have turned towards China 
to talk about nuclear stuff, to talk about buying airplanes. The UAE just bought 15 Chinese um, trainer jets. They've announced that they're going to have joint this month, joint Chinese UAE military exercises in China. Um, so they're sending up all these trial balloons to show Washington, we're not pleased. And if you're mm -hmm. not gonna defend us, we're gonna go and diversify and look towards the East, which is a wake up call for Washington. And that's why they're sending these people, you know, saying we, we will consider sending our soldiers on these ships. Now, of course, that attack uh, of Iran on Saudi Arabia that you mentioned, you know, was, uh, you could say the Saudi leadership was somewhat responsible for because they're, they're the ones who had inflamed the situation in Yemen, which was the context for this, right? That the Yemen had become this kind of proxy war. And from the Saudi point of view, not so proxy. I mean, they were very involved bombing and so on. They got, they got the UAE involved in everything. That was the context for that. On the other hand, the current it was, the wider context was that Trump had dumped the Iran deal and was yeah. beginning to, you know, put all the sanctions back on Iran and move towards maximum pressure, you know, maximum sanctions okay. in order to crush Iran and make them uh, give up more, get a better deal, theoretically. Mm -hmm. And Iran was trying to say to the United States, you're not going to get a better deal. We're not going to cavil, you know, in front of you. We we're we can raise the pressure on you mm -hmm. and we will attack your proxy, the weak link, because Saudi Arabia can't do anything to us. And we're gonna we're gonna whack you through Saudi Arabia. And oil prices, of course, spiked momentarily and the markets went crazy. And 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 so it was an indication that if you don't make peace with Iran, Iran can hurt you. Mm -hmm. And that's what Iran has been doing by taking these ships. Which are um, they? Are, are they Saudi and UAE ships? Um, they're ships. Some of them are Liberian, but they're carrying Kuwaiti oil and other okay. oil out of the Gulf. Okay. Is what they're and, doing. And so then, this confrontation too is ultimately a product of our getting out of the Iran deal, because that's why we seize the Iranian ship ships, and that's why Iran is retiring. Iran okay. is saying if if you don't let us export oil, we're not going to let your allies export oil either. And mm -hmm. so it's a tit for tat situation. Not, not a really shocking reaction when you think about it. Um, and it's a little puzzling to me why we felt we, I don't, anyway, look, uh, we are where we are. So let's, before maybe trying to tie some of this together, let's move to some other part of the Middle East. Where do you want to move to next? I mean, there's Israel, there's Syria, uh, Turkey is feeling its oats. Um, Turkey is feeling its oats. Yeah. What do you want to, what, what, where do you think is the next logical place to, uh, well, you know, I think with the re-election of Erdogan, he is he, he's very worried about his economy and, and inflation rate. And he's got to get that under control. But he is feeling very empowered in the same way that Saudi Arabia and the UAE are. He's been, you know, he's profited from the Ukraine war tremendously. Russian, Russian billionaires, millionaires are moving their money out of Russia to the UAE particularly to the UAE, but also to Turkey. And, you know, the UAE, huh, the statistics coming out of the UAE are, are rather scary from America's point of view in the sense that the UAE has been exporting drones, drone parts to Russia that come from Iran. They've been trans, uh, all, all kinds of memory chips and computer chips, all this high technology that we're trying to keep Russia from getting. Um, is going through places like the UAE and Turkey, and of course, China. 
And they are breaking these sanctions. They're not paying attention. They're not, they're, they're not paying attention to American sanctions. And after all, America doesn't really have the right to oppose them internationally, but it can do so because it has such tremendous financial power and can threaten these countries with secondary sanctions. But increasingly, they're not uh, paying attention to these. And the, whether America really wants to put start sanctioning the UAE, Turkey, and other major allies is debatable. And so it's testing America's resolve and its power. Uh, and Turkey is right there at the forefront of this. And they've been profiting from the Ukraine war tremendously um, because they've been, you know, they've been washing oil, grain, all kinds of products from Russia through Turkey, the banking system. America's putting pressure, but Turkey walks a very fine line there in terms of profiting from both sides. And Turkey also feels free to intervene militarily, I, I gather, in Syria and Iraq, mainly when it is it mainly when it involves the Kurds. Of course, the, Turkey fears yes. this the Kurdish, Kurdish national the Kurdish insurrection and major, major issue, because, of course, roughly 20 percent of Turks are Kurds. And they're very worried about a separatist movement that could uh -huh. lose them the entire eastern part of their country. And so they. uh on a fairly regular basis, right? They kill people in Iraq or Syria. Uh, this month, they have killed in Syria alone nine um, leading Kurdish military figures that are allied with the United States. Mm -hmm. They've wounded another 12 of them. Uh, and normally, the United States would be protected. The United States has a no fly zone over this northeastern region, 30% of Syria. And it's there to protect its allies, the Kurds, who helped it destroy ISIS. But increasingly, America has been shutting its eyes to growing Turkish intervention in this zone, mm -hmm. uh, and a particularly drone intervention, which are hunting down the leading Kurdish military figures and killing them. Uh, YPG, they belong to the leading political unit there that, that Turkey views and as designated as a terrorist organization. And the United States is doing nothing to stop it, or at least we don't see them doing anything to stop it, because they want good relations with Turkey. Okay. And uh, I mean, speaking of, of ISIS, did Turkey just kill yet another? I mean, the life expectancy of an ISIS leader is like, what, a year now? I mean, how many, how many have been killed over the last few years? Five. This is, we're at number five, and I guess we've got number six caliph just got announced because the fifth caliph <laughs> was living in Turkish I'd, I'd love to be. I'd love to be the, uh, the insurance uh, salesman. Um, I, I don't. <laughs> the life insurance salesman he calls. Uh, but I don't think, I think it's worse than, you know, California housing. Um, I don't think any major insurance companies are extending insurance to caliphs these days. No. Um, so, but it raises a question like, we're one of our professed reasons for remaining in Syria. I mean, one thing, Syria is like everyone's playground. Okay, so Turkey does these cross-border strikes. Israel does these cross-border strikes. Israel killed four Syrian soldiers a few days ago or something. Yes, they did. We uh, are, have troops there. Uh, and pretty much all of this, I guess, is technically in violation of international law, right? I mean, we're, we have troops there that, and without the permission of the Syrian government. And then... We complain when Soviet jets harass our drones, which is kind of funny because 
The, the Syrian government wants the Soviet jets there. I mean, it's a little like if we were doing our own little military exercises in Japanese airspace and China flew some drone in against the wishes of the Japanese government and then complained that our jets were harassing them. I mean, we would laugh about that. But but and that's not a perfect analogy, but. Ukraine is, a, is an analogy. You know, Ukraine war, in theory, the United States is there, well, is supplying arms to the Ukrainian government because it is the legitimate government of Ukraine. And mm -hmm. the Soviet, the Russia, excuse me, is the invader. That's, and in Syria, the United States is the invader. Now, we are there under some kind of a UN umbrella because of the war on terror. In 2001, UN resolutions were passed, America could fight this war on terror. And so the anti- But, but, but that, it takes a pretty expansive reading of that, right? I mean, not- Very expansive. Yeah, and I mean, not every, law, not every lawyer, of, uh, expert in international law would say, okay, this is a solid case, right? And ISIS has been destroyed as a, as a power, as a land power. Now there still are ISIS uh, groups that do hit and run that are hiding out. But one can make the argument that local government, Syrian government, should be empowered to, um, to fight that war. And mm -hmm. even more, uh, I suppose, you know, on the legalistic side, America, a big hunk of American troops in Syria are at Tunf, which is very far away from any ISIS activity. It's the town on the Iraq Syrian border, sitting right in the middle of the major highway that connects Damascus and Baghdad, where most of Iraq Syrian trade is carried out. And the United States keeps several hundred, few hundred troops there in order to block that trade, in theory, so that Iran cannot send weapons to Hezbollah along that highway. There are no ISIS within 100, you know, anywhere near that area. Mm -hmm. American troops are not fighting the war on terror there. They are fighting a war against Iran. And they are, they're hobbling the Syrian trade and econ economy there. So they're fulfilling a totally different function. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, legally, they shouldn't be there. So it, it, it shows you how far we've gotten away from the war on terror uh, rationale. And I mean, the other thing is, is Syria as well as Russia, as well as Iran, are plenty motivated to fight ISIS, and they know how to do it. It's, it's like there's just, there's just a surplus no of people ISIS who want to Syria. fight ISIS. What, what's happened? Before the Syrian government was destabilized, there was no ISIS in Syria, just as right. there was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, before America overturned the government there. Right. You know, this entire region, the, the, the local governments have every reason to go against ISIS because ISIS is their major enemy and as is Al-Qaeda and Islamic fundamentalists. So um, yes, you know, this, this is what's going to happen in the future and eventually America will withdraw and the Syrian army will take over the task of providing security within Syria. Mm -hmm. So we are in Syria fighting Iran to some extent on behalf of Israel, I guess, although it sounds like maybe increasingly that motivation will coincide with a kind of a larger Cold War type rationale to, uh, you know, to the extent that we see this whole region 
as uh, kind of a, a, an arena for fighting Soviet and Chinese influence. Right. You know, President Trump's uh, special envoy to Syria, Ambassador James Jeffrey, he articulated as we are in Syria and we're turning Syria. He said, my job is to turn Syria into a quagmire for Russia and Iran. And he articulated our position in Syria very much as this larger war against our enemies, Russia and Iran. As mm -hmm. long as we can beggar Syria and keep it extremely poor, it'll become a swamp in which Iran and Russia have to throw good money after bad. I mean, leaving aside the, the kind of uh, what seems to me the entirely corrupt uh, moral calculus underpinning that thing where we just use other people's lives uh, in that particular way. Quagmires have a habit of backfiring, right? They I mean, we, we, we got the Soviet Union bogged down in the quagmire in Afghanistan, and that's why the Taliban exists, right? And now they're the big enemy. Yes. And, and and, you know, look, at reducing the per capita GDP of countries, which is what sanctions do and what interventions do and so forth, it seems good in the beginning because you're weakening your enemies, you're hurting your enemies. But in the long run, it's very, it's very um, counterproductive for the United States. You know, in theory, the United States wants a liberal world order. It wants democracy. It wants, it wants good things for people, not bad things. That's what we tell ourselves all the time. And that, in fact, is what produces more democracy. Now, the one thing that social scientists can agree on is that the, the, the first prerequisite for democracy promotion is a middle class, is a, a, a prosperous people who can agree on things and who can look forward to a positive future. And then they will play by the rules. If you impoverish them and make them dumb and make them hungry so they begin to fight each other like rats, um, you're not going to get democracy. You're going to get more terrorism. You're going to get more bad things. It's not an American way. And, but increasingly, America has turned to that kind of policy with sanctions on so many countries where we're just impoverishing people. And uh, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah, so Syria and Iran in that region, but also, I mean, Cuba just seems to me the ultimate testament to the futility, if not counterproductiveness of sanctions. We've been doing this for well over half a century. Um, doesn't seem to be working. No. <laughs> um, no. So, uh, have you ever at, like asked yourself, like, suppose we hadn't invaded Iraq and suppose we hadn't intervened in Libya and suppose we hadn't uh, supported a proxy war in Syria? Now, that serious, slightly tougher thought experiment because there were regional friends of ours who would have liked to have done it anyway, probably. But if you imagine, and of course, it's also a hard thought experiment because, you know, who knows? If we hadn't invaded Iraq, uh, various things might not have happened. If we hadn't have toppled the government in, in, in Libya, various things might not have been destabilized. But if, if it had been our rule just not to intervene in these manners, you know, invasion, aerial bombardment and proxy by supplying weapons to jihadists, among others. Um, although I guess we tried to confine the weapons to relatively, quote, moderate rebels. Um, have you ever have you ever just asked yourself how different might the region be? All the time. And, you know, I think the, the, in many ways, the original sin, if you want to use that term, was 
just as you as you suggested earlier, was the Brzezinski policy that Reagan put on steroids of trying to drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan, which led to the Mujahid, you know, supporting Mujahideen. Uh, Al Qaeda was a part of that, but supporting jihad and mm -hmm. and really putting that fundamentalist Salafi ideology on steroids, which has led to so much grief around the world and in the Middle Eastern region mm -hmm. writ large. If we had not done that, if we had just left the Soviets in Afghanistan, what were they trying to do? They were trying to introduce secularism. They were trying to take the veils off of women. They were trying to educate women. They had legislated, you know, universal education for women and men. They were trying to do the same things that America was trying to do, oddly enough. Yes, it would have been in their sphere of influence, but they would have choked on Afghanistan all on their own without America sending in Stinger missiles and Mujahideen and pumping up jihadism and Salafism. Mm. You know, so what? And, and in some ways, what's going on in Niger brings up this mm. same question of interventionism. Mm. You know, do we allow a Niger to move into the Russian sphere of influence and allow these people who've taken over, who are probably thugs and no good nicks and so forth, but rather than intervene and potentially push the, whole, the region into war, that would suck in neighbors and, and, and produce another sedan situation. You know, perhaps the best thing to do is to stay out of it, even if it means a Russian predominance for the time being in that region. And I think that's what we should have done in Afghanistan. I think it would have, you know, it, it would have, it would have just reduced, you know, we've spent over $6 trillion in Afghanistan and Iraq alone, according to the Brown University, numbers. It, it's been a massive waste of money. If we had mm. spent that money on our own education, on rebuilding roads, on, you know, building America back better, we would be so much better off today. And is your sense, by the way, speaking of Niger, that uh, that Nigeria, which is, well, it, it, I mean, what's technically threatening to invade Niger is what remains of ECOWAS, this regional organization that Niger and, and Mali and Burkina Faso were also members of before they were suspended in the wake of coups. Anyway, uh, technically, it's the remnants of this uh, organization that are threatening to invade Niger unless it uh, re you know, reinstalls right. the democratically elected president. Um, Nigeria seems to be kind of leading the way there. Is your sense that an invasion's not going to happen unless the U.S. says, yes, we, we have your back or what? I mean, I, I can't tell I, to I, what extent this is a proxy thing. I think America is key to this. Uh, uh, I do. I don't think the neighborhood is going to want to get into a war uh, unless they do have some kind of international. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, France matters uh, too, I guess, right? France must matter a big, big deal. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I'm sure they're all putting their heads together now and, and asking exactly the same questions that we're asking right now is, is it worth it? You know, what can go wrong? And we've seen so many things go wrong and so many interventions. I think I think U.S. I think people in Washington are very chastened, and I think Europeans are chastened, and 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 that may, um, you know, may tip it towards the non-intervention scale. I hope so, 
But I wouldn't be surprised if it did, because I think everybody in Washington has come up with, you know, as finally after four interventions is learning this simple uh, lesson that that so many things go wrong and that we don't know, we don't understand what we're getting ourselves into when we do enter into these countries. So if you had to bet even money, you'd bet there won't be an invasion by, I do. by Nigeria. I, I'm, a, I'm a praying that that's, that's I, I think, I think America's got too much on its plate. Mm -hmm. Um. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about Israel. Um, there's a lot to say. Um, there's a lot to say. Uh, you know, because there are two dynamics going on. What had until recently been getting the most publicity was the internal fragmentation of Israel proper. Uh, over the over uh, Netanyahu's attempt to constrain the judiciary in a big way, which seems to have already been partly successful, at least the legislation passed, right? And and I guess maybe uh, it's going to be well. We're going to see whether the Supreme Court uh, tries to veto its own being constrained, but uh, I, right. I think maybe that's still in the cards. There's that, and then there's of course the Palestinian issue, and they're not unrelated. Um, you know, there. You know, if I could interrupt you here yeah. for a second, um, you know, I think they're 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 much more interrelated than many people understand because one of the main, you know, an important reason why Israel does not have a constitution that could protect it from this kind of assault on its judicial system is because of the Palestinians. Ben-Gurion and successor prime ministers in Israel did not want a constitution for a number of reasons, but an important one was because if they were to put an equality clause into a constitution, which they would have had to do, it would have meant that Palestinian Israelis were equal and that Palestinians would have a right of return so that all these Palestinians, because we have to remember that during the 48 war, two thirds of, Pal uh, of Israel, Palestine were Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Only one third were Jews, the Yeshuv. During the 48 war, um, 800,000 Palestinians fled from the territory that was conquered by the Haganah. And the they Haganah were not allowed being a, uh, a particular security arm of the kind of inchoate Israeli state? Or yes, the Haganah, which is a defense force, which became the, the, the you know, okay. Israeli defense force, IDF. Okay. So the, the, and the first, you know, the first organic laws that were passed by Israel had to do with how do we deal with these refugees? Because according to international law, all those 800,000 Palestinians who had um, gone to cousins' houses, gone to, got away from the main battlefield in order to save their children or their wives or sending their family out, were not allowed to return to their homes. And Israel passed a series of laws. And one was the you know, absentee law of absenteeism, which is any Palestinian, any, um, hostile who had fled their home for 48 hours or more mm -hmm. could not return to it. 
Now, this flew in the face of international law, which says you cannot drive a population out of their homes. And that, that was the fundamental, that was one of the first articles of the UN um, charter because of what Hitler had done, trying to ethnically cleanse people, you know, destroying the Jews, driving them out of their homes, taking their property in Poland, Czechoslovakia, you name it. The ethnic cleansing that was going on in World War II by the Germans had been um, saying you can't do that. You cannot take land through war and you cannot move out the indigenous population and so forth. Now, Israel had a problem because if they had allowed the Palestinians to return to their homes, um, there would have been more Palestinians in Israel than there were Jews. And so in order to build a Jewish state, they needed to get rid of these people. Then there were 20% of the population of Israel continued to be Palestinians because there were many Palestinians who stayed in their homes, did not flee, and they were given citizenship, mm -hmm. even though there was military rule for quite a bit of time. But they, um, they had many cousins that they wanted to bring back and uh, repatriate or, you know, daughters, wives, parents, so forth, who had fled during the war beyond the lines and wanted to return. So Israel gave the right of return as one of its first laws that all Jews in the world have the right to Israeli citizenship and to come to Israel. But they excluded that 20% of the Palestinian, 20% of the population from having the same rights. And this, you know, two-tiered legal system could be embedded in Israel because there was no constitution that had an equality law. Mm. There's no equality law that would allow Palestinians to sue. Now, in the 1970s, there was a very important firebrand woman, Shulamit Aloni, who was a member of Knesset, who really raised the campaign saying, we want a constitution. She was Jewish? She's Jewish, she's Israeli, because mm -hmm. she wanted a constitution so that women could have the equality law. And they could then divorce and do other things, which they couldn't do. And the, the, the Orthodox rabbis were keeping uh, women without equal rights. So she was running it from a, a purely or a largely internal Israeli point of view. We want a constitution because we want equal rights. Begin. This is Menachem um, Begin, the, the prime Menachem minister. Menachem Begin, prime minister, right wing guy. He said, you know, we can't do that because we're going to have to give those same rights to Palestinians. And we're trying to settle the West Bank. We're trying to do other things. Um, 90 percent of Israeli land is held by the Jewish National Fund, which says it can only be used for Jews and not for Palestinians. There are there are a lot of different laws that would have required that could have been reversed by such a constitution. So Israel avoided a constitution and that's come back to bite it. I guess that's the, the larger lesson to, um, the larger lesson to this is that it's come back to bite Israel. Avoiding these kinds of legal protections, constitutional protections is hurting today, liberal Zionists who are worried about the fundamentalists. Okay, so I want to, uh keep talking about Israel. And I also want to talk about this kind of strange, convoluted uh, Biden uh, plan involving Israel and Saudi Arabia that uh, Biden floated via Tom Friedman. Uh, but uh, we have been talking for almost an hour. And what we generally do is um, 
after this long uh, move into kind of an overtime session that's available to paid subscribers to the non-zero newsletter, which I encourage everyone to become. Because uh, for one thing, we can we can use your support um, as we try to keep having conversations like this that I think are usefully different from what you uh, see on, say, cable TV. Um, and uh, so to, to do that, uh, to become a subscriber, um, you can just Google non-zero and Substack, or uh, for that matter, click a link um, in the show notes on your uh, smartphone app. And the rest of the conversation will become magically available. There's a special um, a special podcast feed you can sign up for then that'll always have the, the full uh, conversations. Anyway, uh, I, I want to thank everyone who's who won't be with us, who's, who's uh, stayed with us this far. Um, and also thank everybody who will be. And Josh, I want to give you, before we do this, a chance to say anything else you want to say by way of uh, summary or or revision or second thoughts. I also want to encourage people to uh, follow you on Twitter. You have, a, you know, if you're interested in the Middle East, you have a great Twitter feed. Uh, and to uh, check out uh, Syria Comment every once in a while, syriacomment.com, uh, and follow your work generally. But do you have anything you want to uh, say? Um, no, I think this is, you know, this is a very timely conversation of great power rivalry in the Middle East. Uh, it's a time of tremendous flux for the United States, which isn't sure how to how to um, consolidate its position in the Middle East without getting more and more involved in local power struggles that are going to keep it uh, keep it weak and keep it not focused on China and its larger challenges in the world. Okay. Uh, so thanks again to everybody. And now we are going into overtime. <laughs>